We ended up taking a direct flight from Salt Lake to Amsterdam, and then we drove to Ukraine because literally every day matters. In April, Svetlana Miller made an emergency trip from her home in Idaho to her home country. I am from Kiev, from the capital. I am currently in Lviv, Ukraine. I caught her on the phone in her hotel late at night, Ukraine time. She'd gone several days with very little sleep. It's emotional. I want to be here for my people, but it's it's kind of insane to be here at the same time when it's so unsafe. And just even Lviv this morning got four rockets dropped. It's impossible to think that I'm, I'm here and this is happening. But Miller felt she really had no choice. She had 20 suitcases of precious cargo that needed to be in Ukraine immediately. So she checked them on that flight to Amsterdam, then drove a rented van across Europe. What's in those suitcases? Just basic protective gear for people, my high school friends and their siblings and just people I grew up with deploying to the front lines without anything but their Nikes and beanies and they have nothing to protect themselves. Earlier the day we spoke, Miller had dropped off the bulletproof vests, helmets, and boots at the Ukrainian equivalent of UPS. They get stuff to any battalion. So that's the fastest way because I wouldn't really be able to get to some of these hot spots. I had a close friend who kept asking for help with a bulletproof vest for her brother and her cousin. They were being shipped off to the front lines. And she was sending me messages every other day on Messenger saying, can you please help us get two vests? And I was saying, you know, we're doing this big fundraiser and I'm going to make sure that your brother and your cousin get one. And it was Saturday that we fundraised and we got enough to order a thousand from people's generous donations. But Monday morning I got a message from her and she said we only need one now just for my cousin if you could just get us one my brother no longer will use one so I know that to the few who are getting the aid it's the matter of life and death I can't fix this war but I can help the individuals I just need to do my best it's a drop but if everybody does something and these drops combine, we could we could make a difference. Huh, I didn't realize well, that's that. an interesting question. You know, I've never heard of it from that. So let's talk about that. Let's talk no, about I think you need to come over, stand in my shoes, agree to disagree. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Today on the show, helping better. The needs right now are enormous. So many millions upon millions of people without food, shelter, or basic medical care in our own communities and across the globe. How can those of us with enough to spare best make a difference? It seems straightforward. You just send money or show up. But if you're not careful, your time and money may do no good, or worse, end up hurting those you're hoping to help. When Russia first invaded Ukraine in late February 2022, Svetlana Miller wasn't sure what to do. I mean, I felt so helpless watching this, hearing from the people who are in the bunkers, family members and friends, and and knowing how awful every, everything is. Miller was born and raised in Kiev and came to the U.S. as a 17-year-old to attend Brigham Young University. She married an American, and they settled in Idaho. But she still has a vast network of contacts in Ukraine, friends, family, and clients of her company that helps Ukrainians get visas to study in America. When that network started lighting up her phone with panicked messages, she thought, Even if we could do something, there's like literally no way to, to, to get it into Ukraine. That's, that's just crazy. The airports had been either bombed or uh, shot down. But... Miller's husband is a member of the Utah National Guard, and it just happened that he was deploying on a NATO mission to Europe right after Russia invaded Ukraine. I had this thought. I said, Darren, why don't you ask on your base if they would be willing 
um, to allow us to send aid on your on your plane in the cargo section of your plane. And he he said, oh, that's a long shot, you know. He came back uh, that day and he said, they said yes. Of course, we learned this 24 hours prior to his departure, so no time to waste. So I, I did a post on Facebook and I just said, friends and neighbors, you have been reaching out to me asking what you can do to help and this is the chance. So my husband left the next day and we we packed several pallets of aid on this plane. He he took to uh, he went to Germany and and then he uh, drove it to the border and like literally a couple of days later everything was in Ukraine handed out to people in the front lines defending the capital, people in the bomb shelters. The food was being distributed. It was absolutely incredible. Hmm. I think that was the turning point right there. For the first time, I slept through the night, and I, I knew I was doing something. It felt incredible. It was supposed to be a one-time thing, but Miller kept hearing from people in desperate need, and it was clear to her that whatever big international aid organizations were on the ground in Ukraine weren't getting the job done. So we just kept going. She sent an application to the IRS to create a new nonprofit called To Ukraine With Love, and a miracle happened. So this is Friday. On Monday, I, I get a call on my phone. It's an, an IRS employee who says, um, we're really backed up. So uh, we're still working on cases from a long time ago, but I see that this is to help Ukraine. And so I'd like to expedite this for you. Mm. And, and so he said, you'll be getting your determination letter shortly. And so I thought, you know, God is on our side. And small miracles started happening. People who would call and say, hey, we heard about you on the news or in um, the newspaper and we want to do something, we want to help. I've been blown away, actually, by people's desire to, to make a difference and help the people in Ukraine. Miller put her business on hold and dove full time into Ukraine relief. 16 plus hours a day, she juggled cell phones, organizing fundraisers, getting export licenses for body armor, coordinating with logistics and shipping companies. She had no experience with any of it, but she had something invaluable, local contacts on the ground. Yes, I have good friends in Kiev who own the uh, line of grocery stores right there in the city. So uh, Max and Masha, having warehouses across Ukraine and, and truck drivers and semi-trucks ready. That was, I think, um, I see the Lord's hand in that. It was always gonna be something that they were going to do to save people in Ukraine. Um, it's a miracle how you can be doing something for years and then you come to a point and you realize all these years I've been preparing for this moment to make a difference. Uh, you know, and I think that was um, something Masha and Max experienced and so as they started their efforts, they connected with, um, they're called Starostas. And so it's kind of like a mayor of a small village. And they started connecting with these mayors who would turn in lists of people who are senior citizens and women and children and also handicapped people in villages who have no way of getting food. And um, they uh, have a schedule um, and they will deliver according to the needs of the people. If there are babies in that town and they need baby formula or, you know, diapers or baby food, that, that's going to be added to the list. Miller worked the phones from Idaho for the first few months of the war while her husband traveled back and forth to Europe with new shipments of supplies for Max and Masha to deliver. The first relief trip Svetlana took herself was that direct flight just before Easter with the 20 suitcases of body armor. When we spoke again in May, she was frustrated that big aid groups still weren't filling the needs she knew existed. And she was more convinced than ever that her efforts mattered. For sure. I mean, I, I knew that I could take money from my neighbors. I could look them in the eyes and say, hey, this money will turn into aid. And at the end of the week, people in Ukraine will be eating because of this money that you're giving me right now. A couple of weeks ago, I had a neighbor who dropped off a, a rather large check and she said, I know you're going to Ukraine. And this is for the people wherever you could use it mo the most, you know. And I, I looked at them out and I thought, well, this is exactly what 
uh, a hospital needs for a it's it's called the wound back and it sucks out infection and and makes it so that you don't have to cut people's limbs this military hospital they said we have three of these wound backs we could use 70 and so when when we delivered to the hospital our drivers always print a, a tag that's a, that for a photo report i said instead of printing thank you to ukraine was love why don't you print thank you so and so and they wish to remain anonymous uh, but i said just for my neighbor's family to see where her donation went and so um, they printed this um, tag and i sent it to my neighbor and i said look this is what your donation did and she was just like oh my gosh i, I can't believe this just seeing um, seeing her name next to the uh, this device and it was a man holding it who lost one arm and would have lost two but due to um, because this device was delivered he was able to save one of his arms and so it made such an impact that she she shared the the photo with her grown children and they decided they wanted to donate and before we knew it we had like 10 times more in our fund just from their family and so we completely shifted the way we we um we ask organizations and individuals to donate and i think it's encouraging people more because they see their hand and and what they did in ukraine Svetlana Miller is a native of Ukraine who lives in Idaho. She founded TwoUkraineWithLove.org. I'm assuming she's not getting a lot of support from any kind of big fundraising machine. This is Meg Sattler. She's an expert in how the humanitarian aid system works globally. She says when a crisis happens, billions of dollars start flowing quite quickly but not into scrappy nonprofits like To Ukraine With Love. And I think that's such a brilliant example of exactly where a lot of the problems lie. Because if you look at most crises, any sort of targeted assistance like that tends to happen outside of the system. So where does all that money go? This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. You could picture the global humanitarian aid system like an upside-down pyramid. At the top, you've got a handful of really, really big agencies, mostly associated with the United Nations, like UNHCR, that's UN High Commissioner for Refugees, the World Food Program, and UNICEF, which is the UN Children's Fund. Now, they're funded mainly by governments who are part of the UN— Anytime there's a crisis somewhere, you'll hear about a U.N. meeting where nations like the United States pledge billions of dollars in aid. Yeah, so the U.N. agencies, they're really like, you know, the McDonald's and the Amazon of the aid world. So they come in with all of the money. So they become not only implementers, but really funders, decision makers, people who really sort of hold the pen on a lot of what happens in a crisis. Meg Sattler is the director of Ground Truth Solutions, which is a nonprofit working to hold the humanitarian aid sector accountable. She used to work at the UN's World Food Program, and she did on-the-ground aid work in Haiti with World Vision, which is one of the giant non-governmental organizations, or NGOs, that fills out the next tier of the upside-down pyramid. These are the charities we immediately see on TV and social media raising money for a crisis. The American Red Cross, for example, collected $500 million for victims of the earthquake in Haiti in 2010. These big NGOs also get lots of money from the UN agencies at the top of the inverted pyramid to do things like deliver food, shelter, medical care on the ground in a crisis. But Sattler says they are not great at listening to the governments and individuals that they are trying to help. I think a lot of the ways that these big agencies work is still very supply-driven. It's very, you know, we have a big job to do and we will give this thing to you and we want to do that on a grand scale. And that doesn't really allow for, you know, a lot of time spent with communities understanding what their priorities are, you know, what is happening already, what are the needs, what do people really want to be able to help themselves and how can we support that? Sattler says the people in the best position to know who needs what and how to deliver it 
are way down at the bottom of the upside-down pyramid, down in the point. <laughs> They're nonprofits like To Ukraine With Love and local charities and governments who are there in the places affected by the crisis. But they are not able to tap into those billions of dollars of aid flowing into the top of the pyramid because getting any of that money takes connections and lots of paperwork and time. Meanwhile, the big aid groups that are flush with cash show up and lure away the local staff. UN agencies and huge non-government organizations like, you know, Save the Children, World Vision, Oxfam, they typically pay more than national structures. And they come in and they need to hire really a lot of people because they're keen to demonstrate that most of their teams are local. They also need local people to help tell them what to do. Um, so they poach them from these smaller national agencies or from the government. Um, they also poach a lot of journalists. So almost every big aid agency in a country has a great communications person who was previously a great journalist. And so a lot of those people who traditionally would have been involved in the process of either nation building or holding foreign agencies accountable have suddenly become part of the machine. And how long would this uh, international machinery stay in place during the response to a crisis? It really depends. So it depends on financing is a huge one. Um, places that have a lot of money will see foreign presence for a long time. In some places it never goes away, like Haiti. <laughs> Haiti has sort of become known as this republic of NGOs. After the earthquake in 2010... We had a lot of NGOs that arrived in the country. This is Haiti's ambassador to the United States, Bokchit Edmond. We spoke at the end of 2021, just after another earthquake struck Haiti. So the failures of the aid response and of all those NGOs were fresh in Ambassador Edmond's mind. But unfortunately, due to the chaotic situation then, uh, they establish themselves everywhere, and most of the times without the consent of the administration of the government. And so just, they didn't have; they just showed up and started just, doing what they thought would they be a good showed. thing. And then, and you you may arrive in an area where you get fifty NGOs doing the same thing, and another area of the country where there is the need for that thing, and it's not being received because uh, there was a lack of cooperation and coordination. Let me give you a well-known example on what happened with the money uh, that the American Red Cross are collected on behalf of Haiti after the 2010 earthquake. More than $500 million. Uh, but unfortunately, that money didn't go to Haiti. Investigative reports found that the American Red Cross spent a quarter of that money on internal overhead— and the money that did directly fund relief in Haiti was often poorly managed and tracked. There are many examples where those kind of uh, intervention, those NGOs without any regulation, without any supervision, uh, the opacity of the administration, uh, that led us to a situation where a lot of people, even the taxpayers' money, uh, they are asking, where all those money we sent, we contributed why now Haiti is still in the same situation? Because they don't see any result. But the fact of the matter is, more than 98% of those money never, been, never went to the Haitian government. The, those money were managed by only NGOs. And therefore, public policy of the government couldn't be implemented. Now, none of what the ambassador says is surprising to Meg Sattler. She was in Haiti working with World Vision after the 2010 earthquake. There's a lot of things that went wrong in that response, but I think a lot of it was based on this same problem where people weren't really listening to what the needs were and were just really scrambling to spend huge amounts of money. So things like, you know, aid assistance that was implanted from a development program in Africa, it felt, a lot of the time. You know, we sort of did programming where we were giving out farm animals and the things that people, you know, maybe they sort of said that they were grateful for them, but it really wasn't what they needed. What did they need? I think, you know, they needed shelter, they needed money for rent, probably. Um, Needs were very different depending on the sorts of communities that you were talking to. Everything was kind of destroyed 
Um, so I think there was initially there was this focus on, you know, just getting people sort of fed and getting them in tents, but then that remained for a really long time, as you'll recall. Like there were just these camps for so long with aid being distributed every day, water being trucked in. Um, I found a lot of what I was doing was just not necessarily anything terrible, but just programming that didn't work. For example, we did this huge shelter program with my organisation and another huge organisation did a shelter program in the same area, but we didn't talk to each other. So we provided shelters that were exponentially better than the other agency did. And then there were huge riots between communities and directed at both of our agencies. Now that was completely avoidable. Shelter meaning like tents or what kind of shelters were you providing? These were like temporary shelters. Um, so longer term structures once the response was sort of trying to move away from tents. So there were riots because people wanted the better ones? Yeah, and they were just saying, you know, why did my neighbour get that one and I got this one? The same thing happens with cash responses where different agencies work out who gets what cash or voucher system um, and someone down the road gets more money than someone who is their neighbour or some people get vouchers to use in certain controlled ways and other people get unconditional cash. Um, and it just creates huge discontent for reasons that are very obvious, but there just hasn't been a lot of sort of listening to people on their needs and then coordinating better between agencies. The humanitarian aid sector is well aware of its shortcomings and is working, has been working to address them. Meg Sattler's current organization, Ground Truth Solutions, steps in with real-world feedback to help that process. For example, they've surveyed thousands of Haitians over the years and found some common themes. Haitians want to know where the money's going, who's deciding how it's distributed, and why the rules are different depending on the agency. They also want to be part of those decisions. And, perhaps most importantly, they want help getting out of this crisis mode they're in. And they were really generous with their responses. You know, they said, for sure, we received, for example, a, a tarp or some oil or whatever it was at a time when we really needed it, when it was like just after the crisis, we needed to patch up our home, we needed to eat for the next two days. That aid came in quickly and it was useful. But then all of them had this bigger question of why they needed that like why they were in a position with so much aid money coming into the country and so many development programs happening in their community that they were still relying on these like very basic items of assistance that they had to line up for for ages and, you know, feel a little bit sh sort of shamed by that process. And why wasn't there more of a focus on actual recovery and livelihoods and longer-term solutions and maybe small amounts of cash to develop businesses and, you know, all the stuff that we've learnt over time about what works in crises. So they're always going to be quite polite in terms of, you know, I received this and it was useful, thanks, but it's nothing that will actually transform their lives or help them to recover better next time. Meg Sattler is the director of Ground Truth Solutions. It's a small nonprofit aimed at improving accountability across the humanitarian sector. There is another kind of helping that's smaller in scale, but also fraught with the potential for doing harm. So the experience that really caused me to start grappling with voluntourism happened when I was a teenager. Pippa Biddle has spent much of the last decade researching and writing about this. With voluntourism as an industry, so often it's actually not about uh, making a difference. Almost every step of my trip in Tanzania was for me, not for anyone else. When Biddle was 16, attending a posh all-girls boarding school in Connecticut, she got the chance to go on a service trip to Africa with a bunch of other girls. And the idea would be to volunteer at an orphanage and then go on a safari. So arriving at um, the orphanage was celebratory. There was this big gate and it rolled back and our bus rolled in and all these girls came running towards us. The orphanage um, focused on girls between probably about 10 years old and up. Um, and they all came running towards us and they were all wearing these matching dresses and they started singing songs. It was absolutely intoxicating. 
we get off the buses and they're surrounding us and they're singing and they're helping us carry our bags down to the housing for the volunteers. The next few days are were really a, a blur of just excitement. I mean, we'd, we'd wake up in the morning and we'd wash our clothes in buckets and we'd be eating our meals before going to the work site and we're working with the workmen and then during breaks we're learning Kiswahili from the the orphans who now I know mostly we're not orphans but in my mind there was this idea of um it really felt like a perfect experience it felt like everything I'd been sold it would be um, and I say sold because I I paid to be there. It was a very very expensive experience, and it it was fulfilling everything I wanted. The orphanage had an associated school that was on site, um, and the girls were receiving a um, pretty. Uh, sophisticated education. And in order to get their next level of accreditation, they needed a freestanding library. And so we were building, I mean, this is a small building, maybe 20, maybe 15 feet by 10 feet. Um, but we'd be building out a cement block. And so that was that was our primary objective. Um, so you were doing when, like, like bricklaying? Like, oh, or, yeah. You know. <laughs> Had you done a lot of that as a 16-year-old before? No. <laughs> So how, did, how much good did you think you were doing? I think what's really interesting is for me, almost immediately upon arrival, the perspective shifted from how much good am I doing to how good do I feel? Hmm. And those two things became increasingly interlocked. Um, the better I felt, the more good it felt like I was doing. And I felt really, really good. So I must be doing really, really good. So I have a very long track record of being a terrible sleeper. And so when I woke up in the morning before people, I got up and I left the bunkhouse and started walking around the compound. And I saw that the workmen that we'd been working alongside were already at the site um, and they appeared to be working on it. And so I started walking up towards the site and I can see that the walls are actually lower the walls that we'd been building are actually lower than they'd been when we finished the day before. They were taking apart the work that we'd done and then redoing it, but not telling us they had to redo it, and then repeating that every day. Pippa Biddle kept quiet about what she'd seen, but over the years, it would pop back into her mind and bother her a bit. Finally, about a decade later, she decided to look more closely. And she was horrified to discover that her efforts at that orphanage in Tanzania were not just unhelpful, they'd actually caused harm. Coming to terms with that led to her book, Hours to Explore, Privilege, Power, and the Paradox of Volunteerism. Here is how Pippa Biddle thinks about that trip now, in hindsight. Being welcomed by a group of children running towards you, uh, singing and cheering for you when they don't know you is an inherently choreographed action that doesn't just happen organically. It's something that they've been taught to do. Um, and the reason they're taught to do it is because um, the host organization or the orphanage in our case knows that if the volunteers feel like they're being welcomed in that way, they're more likely to donate. There is a direct tie between what they're asking the kids to do and a desire for financial gain. So over 80% of children who live in orphanages are not orphans. This is globally. So where are these kids coming from? This is, this is where it gets really dark. They're buying them. Buying doesn't just necessarily mean exchanging money for a kid. But their, their orphanage directors are going into communities and saying, I can give your child a better life. I can help them access things that you cannot afford to give them. So I will, but you have to let me take your kid. And then those kids are housed in orphanages. And in order for orphanages to get donations, they actually need to look like they need help. Sometimes they really, really, really do. Sometimes they really don't have very much money. And so the, experience and the opportunities that were sold to parents their, that their children would have are not then delivered. 
by the orphanages because it is actually counter to their goals to dress all the children properly and feed all the children properly and house all the children properly and educate all the children properly. Who's gonna pay to volunteer in an orphanage where all the children are perfectly dressed, perfectly well-fed, perfectly housed and have professional teachers doing their jobs? Who's gonna give money to that? So our choosing to spend time at an orphanage props up not just that individual orphanage, but entire global system that prioritizes financial gain over child, children's well-being. There are well-documented cases of abuse in orphanages around the world, and there's a counter-movement to shut them down. Biddle focuses a lot on the perils of voluntourism in orphanages because they're one of the most common destinations for these kinds of trips. And while the problems of voluntourism are nuanced, when it comes to orphanages, Biddle says it's straightforward. We should not be going to orphanages. We should not be funding orphanages. We should not be supporting. And if an orphanage is willing to let you go uh, and you are not a child psychologist and a doctor and, I don't know, something else extremely useful and background checked, then they clearly don't have their priorities in the line anyway. But I would, I would specify quickly... There's a difference between going off to be a voluntourist and going off to volunteer. What is your definition of voluntourism? Yeah, so for me, voluntourism is short-term volunteering uh, in a community that is not your own. So it can be domestic. Um, that does not require uh, mastery of certain skills necessary to consider it like high-quality volunteering or employment. Um, so short term, I typically define as four weeks or less, um, and unskilled is really one of the key things. Unskilled is hard because some people will say, well, uh, I was teaching English and I speak English, but that's not the same as being an English instructor. Uh, so really it's that combination of short term outside of your own community, unskilled work. So I am vehemently anti-voluntourism, but I'm not anti-volunteering. And I think that's a really important um, difference. The reason so many people go to orphanages is that there's so few barriers to volunteering at orphanages. The vast majority of orphanages will take anyone to volunteer. They don't do background checks. They don't care about your age. They don't care about your credentials. Instead, what we should be striving for are to volunteer with organizations that care about our credentials, that care about what we have to offer and what we can bring to the table. Sometimes that's an organization at home. Sometimes that's an organization somewhere else. But if we, if we pivot our focus from going to the most exotic place as inexpensively as possible and with as few barriers to entry as possible to going to the right place that needs the skills that we have and that holds us to a professional standard, that's where we can do real good. Yeah. So, Pippa, let's talk about outside of orphanages. You know, if if I go to the trouble to uh, inform myself, I find an organization that's not um, exploiting children, and instead they are, you know, doing some sort of agricultural thing that the community apparently really wants because they're, you know, like allowing a group to come in and dig a well or, you know, do irrigation ditches or, I don't know, it's manual labor. Like, can I feel okay doing that? Anytime you're trying to volunteer doing something that needs no skills, you're probably not doing the right thing. Uh, because if I've seen anything in my travels around the world, it is a surplus of unskilled labor. That is not something that we are in a shortage of, and especially in areas that are economically depressed. They are not uh, experiencing a shortage of people who can pick up a shovel. Uh, what they're generally experiencing a shortage of is people who have really good skills that can be applied in often unsexy ways, like uh, Excel spreadsheets and small nonprofit accounting and these things that you can actually gain the skills for and then go work with organizations to do. Um, I think that, again, it's this, it's this immediate jump to doing the easy thing. If it's easy, it's probably wrong. This is not a matter of uh, sort of trying to get people to give up on the idea of giving back. Quite the opposite. Instead, what I would love to see is for people to give back in a way that's truly impactful. Often that means doing less, but doing it better. Taking longer to do it. Being more patient 
about outcomes, not doing the thing that has the immediate flashy, like a payoff, because often that flashy payoff is a flash in the pan. Why do communities allow groups to come in and do this if it's not truly helpful for them? They stomach the things that go wrong because they need help. In the book, I write about a town called Rio Olympio in the Dominican Republic. Um, and as a community, it's extremely isolated and over the years has been heavily reliant on external aid coming in from the government and from NGOs. Often volunteers and voluntourists are associated with those projects. Um, in the book, I write about one particular project, which was a greenhouse project that went horribly wrong. So the vision uh, was to build a series of large greenhouses that would uh, provide the community with ample high-quality nutrition and uh, revenue stream through the selling of fresh produce. The nonprofit picked a piece of land to build it on um, without really consulting with members of the community as to why that piece of land, which was perfectly flat and clear, had nothing built on it yet. Um, and sort of treated the community like they were stupid for not having done this before. Well, it turns out the reason they hadn't built anything there was because it's a wind tunnel. And so within a very short period of time of these greenhouses being built, they were completely destroyed by storms that just rip through and shred the plastic on these greenhouses. Now, if the greenhouses had been built from metal and um, fiberglass or plexiglass or glass, uh, this wouldn't have been a problem. But instead, they were built in a really, really cheap way with wood and plastic sheeting. Um, and it just resulted in a complete mess. Uh, but instead of doing it better, uh, the organizations left and the town was left with this sort of ridiculous monument to aid gone wrong. Now, the response from the town, however, was not to say no aid can ever come back into our town because they messed up. This town is heavily reliant on aid coming in. Um, until recently, the town wasn't connected to the uh, power grid. Uh, so they relied heavily on solar power. So that was something that was a, a supplied by nonprofits. They sort of had to take what they could get. One of the things that I learned when researching my book is that there's a very significant track record of trip providers choosing to no longer work with communities that ask to have oversight in projects. And when a community has become reliant or has always been reliant on some external help, that's a really scary potential outcome. If they speak too loudly, they might not have any school. They might not have any food aid. They might not have any tourism dollars coming in. And so when the risk is that high, um, they choose not to, to risk it. Are you concerned that people will read your book and or hear, hear this conversation and get to the end of it and say, okay, well, it's more likely that I'm going to do harm than good, so I should just not try to help? I think that people who get to the end of my book and think it may be better if I not try to help are, in fact, the very people who should not be trying to help. And I don't want to shame anyone. It's not a matter of good people versus bad people. It's just it's a hard job. If someone really wants to make a difference in the world, there are so many different ways to do that. There are ways to do that through a more traditional professional path. There are ways to do that in one's own community. And I think about how I volunteer the food pantry in my community. And every single week I have to manage some deliveries, make sure things get on shelves so that we're ready to distribute food. That is the hardest volunteer job I've ever had in my life. And it's not because uh, putting away vegetables is difficult. It's because doing something every week is a really big commitment. If I go on vacation, I have to find someone to cover for me. I challenge people who want to do good and make a difference to try to do the hard stuff in their own community first. Sign up for something where you're going to have to keep doing it. Don't just go serve at a soup kitchen once a month. Make it something that, that really requires you to show commitment 
that requires you to follow through and that other people count on you for. That's, I think, what we should be doing. And then travel. When you can travel, travel. Have fun. Go places. Learn. Absorb cultures. Immerse yourself in languages. Have a good time. And when you get home, live up to your commitments. Be an active member of your community. Don't go somewhere else to try to save someone else. Focus on where you are. Pippa Biddle's book is called Hours to Explore, Privilege, Power, and the Paradox of Volunteerism. No matter where you're trying to do good in the world, there is always a risk that you won't make as much difference as you hope. But if you practice high-impact philanthropy, you are definitely up in your chances that um, whatever money you're providing is, is going to help and hopefully help in a, in a big way. Whether you've got 10 bucks or 10 million, there's an art to doing the most good. I'm Julie Rose. This is Top of Mind. When you're looking to help, it's important to be really clear about why, says Kat Rosquetta. Philanthropy can play a lot of different roles in people's lives. It's not always about doing the most good. Rosquetta heads the Center for High Impact Philanthropy at the University of Pennsylvania. Like if we're really honest with ourselves, not every donation that I make, am I like really focused on, on getting the most philanthropic bang for buck? Right. So, for example, sometimes I'm going to give to a charity, not because I'm thinking, okay, this is, I'm really going to maximize the impact of this gift. I might be giving to this charity because, I don't know, my friend's on the board, or it's a fundraising race. And I know this issue has affected my friend. I'm not going to be doing all this deep due diligence. I'm going to be supporting my friend. And, and that's, that's fine. Right. Be aware of that. Be aware of when you are doing something because, it is satisfying a, a kind of personal need that you have. And, and see if you can figure out how to do that at the same time that you are optimizing for the public good. And, you know, one example that, that I use when I teach is, is um, it was a, a congregation that really cared about uh, reducing hunger in their local community. And for years, what this community did is um, Christmas Eve mass, uh, all the children would, during offertory, would would um, bring cans and boxes of food that would then get distributed to needy families in their community. Now, we know that random cans and boxes of food, even though they are shelf-stable, are not the best way to um, provide emergency food relief. Cash is better because food banks can um, acquire the food that the families need and it's much more flexible. But this was such a cherished tradition uh, and, and it was a great way that families found to teach their kids on Christmas Eve about um, gratitude for what they have and about a responsibility that they have to people who are less fortunate than them. So there was no question that they were going to get rid of this tradition. Instead, they tweaked it. They had the same procession, but they used cans or boxes of food that the family had used for their dinner like the week before. And they put a few dollars in each of those empty cans and empty boxes. They had the same sort of visible tradition of giving. Um, they had, frankly, even better conversations with those kids the night before. And because it was cash, the food banks and food pantries were able to provide up to sort of six to 10 times more food, emergency food, to families in that community. I tell that story because it maybe takes a little creativity to think about how to optimize for impact and feel that personal connection. But when we really care and want to do both, we can, especially if we're not trying to think through this alone. So that's that's another um, way that people can, 
can feel a personal connection is, um, you know, connect with others and pull your resources in a way that it's, it's like you're all learning together about it. Rosqueda Center at the University of Pennsylvania has developed this concept of high-impact philanthropy, which is all about doing the most good with what you've got. It starts with making sure your motive is actually to help, not just to make yourself feel good. And it requires being humble enough to recognize that you may not know the best way to help. So you follow the proven evidence and stay open to course correction. These principles work no matter how much money you have to give. So, I mean, here's, here's an example of you don't have to have a lot of money to make a, a meaningful difference in somebody else's life. One of the organizations that we had looked at is an organization called Youth Villages. Um, and um, Youth Villages provides support to some of our most vulnerable young people. These are young people who are in or transitioning out of foster care. And um, something as simple as covering a monthly bus pass to get them to work, right? Depending on your community, maybe that's a $100 monthly bus pass. 10 friends, each contributing $10 to cover the cost of that monthly bus pass to make sure that young person, instead of having no way to support themselves, is able to reliably show up to their first job and start getting the um, track record they need so that they can be gainfully employed I mean, that, that is the kind of thing that really does transform a life. Rosqueda says high-impact philanthropy works in every setting, whether you're focused on an ongoing need in your community or looking to help in a crisis. In fact, she says it's during a war or a natural disaster that high-impact philanthropy is maybe most important. Because literally, um, the decision can mean the difference between life or death for those individuals who are most directly affected. Now, the good news is for donors today, the information exists and is publicly available, and that's why our center exists. You can go to our website, right, www.impact.upenn.edu. We have a whole section on disaster response giving um, and simple ways that you can prevent doing harm. Um, one is to, uh, unless you really have contacts on the ground and you have some faster way than anybody else to get materials to them, do not start packaging boxes of donations like water bottles and blankets and send them over to the affected region. Just don't do it. Why? Because what happens in a disaster is that it overwhelms the systems that are in place. Right. It um, it closes roads. It um, puts things into chaos. So anytime a donor from outside the region, as well intentioned as they are, thinks here are some things that I think I might need in that situation. And then as individuals package those things up and, and try to send them over there, all that does, it clogs up the infrastructure that's needed to get things like um, medicine at scale, um, specialized doctors and first responders who are needed in that region. So give money, not stuff. Give cash, because in a disaster situation, the needs can change overnight, right? You can't transform a blanket or a bottle of water into the food or medicine that that family needs. So that's why cash is so important in a crisis is because it's flexible and it means those nonprofits who are on the ground already can use it to meet whatever needs are emerging at that time. Now, there's another aspect of all of this, which is the, the, the effects of a crisis usually don't end within a few months. Hmm. These communities will be affected for years, if not generations. And so another way to practice high-impact philanthropy is, um, you know, set aside some money for uh, longer-term recovery and relief and building back better. Oh, that's interesting. So, um, you know, if I've got a couple hundred dollars here that I can give, if I want to maximize the impact of that, I might give some now immediately Mm -hmm. But then I might also plan to circle back to this issue in six months and figure out where to give some more. Exactly. 
for every crisis, there is a lot of giving early on, and then it drops. There's donor fatigue, and people move on to the next news cycle. So having some now and saving some intentionally for later, sometimes that can be even higher impact because the needs are better known at that time, but there's often not as much attention or money going to meet those needs. Rosqueda says in a crisis situation, high-impact philanthropy requires balancing the need to do your research with the urgency of the needs on the ground. If your goal is to offer immediate relief, you may opt to give to a smaller local group like To Ukraine With Love rather than the Red Cross. You'll need to be careful not to fall for a scam, which definitely can happen when you're giving to groups that are not as well-known. But Rosqueda's advice is to rely on the research reputable groups have already done. She recommends checking her website, of course, which is impact.upenn.edu, and also guidestar.org, which vets charity organizations. The main thing, though, is to give as quickly as possible. Don't let your fear of not doing enough or doing it wrong keep you from doing something when the need is urgent. And while there's certainly room for improvement in the humanitarian aid sector, Rosqueda finds a lot of reason for hope. I think there's a lot of cynicism out there where people are suspicious of nonprofits or like, how do I make sure that my money goes to the right place? I might get scammed. And, and while I understand why they may feel that way, from where I sit, I just see all these great organizations, all these bright spots of where um, things are working and I, I just feel like it's it's just a matter of making sure other people are aware of it because um, there are so many great ways to help. And, and that's, you know, th that's what we, my, my team and I spend all our time doing is, is trying to make sure that other people are, are aware of that so that, you know, you can translate those good intentions into, into actual impact. Kat Rosqueda is the founding director of the Center for High Impact Philanthropy at the University of Pennsylvania. Their website is impact.upenn.edu. Guidestar.org is the other resource she recommends if you are looking to help better. Top of Mind is a production of BYU Radio. Today's episode was produced by me, Olivia Young, and Cole Cummings, with help from Ciara Hewlett and Cleon Wall. We had music and sound design by Jerem Hansen, Christian Mocatel, and the post-production team at BYU Broadcasting. If you're enjoying Top of Mind, and I hope you are, please rate and review the podcast wherever you listen. That'll help other people find us and feel the power of thinking again. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon. Thank you.